Hey there, guys. Jeff Manchester here. Welcome to the first edition of the Vodcast. I've got my Sky Vodka here. Got it in my glass right here. Check it out there. Some lime, some cranberries. I am drinking vodka now. I like beer, but um, this Christmas, my mother told me I was getting fat. So we've gone to vodka sodas. That's fine. Fine by me. Just great. This vodcast is really devoted to answering questions that I can't always answer in a full kind of way uh, on Reddit and on YouTube when you guys leave comments and stuff like that. I wanted to create a space where um, I could get everything answered and really speak to you directly like this. So it's going to be on the YouTube channel. It would mean a lot to me if you shared this on Reddit or Twitter or whatever your social circles are. To ask me a question, you can tweet me at Jeff Manch and with the hashtag vodcast, or you can write to vodcastpodcaster at gmail.com. And you can get in touch with me that, with me that way, and uh, I'll let you know in the email that I've received it, and we can take it from there. So I have a table of contents right below in the description, so you can flip quickly to answers uh, that you've asked uh, questions to, so you don't have to sort of watch the whole thing. Uh, that's why I'm kind of doing this in video, because it's a bit more flexible than doing it in audio and putting it on iTunes, and there's so much stuff on iTunes. So. We're going to stay here on YouTube. You can ask me questions on this vodcast about composition, about arrangement, about mixing, about mastering. Uh, we can do some mix reviews. A lot of people sent me in a couple of mixes, so we'll be listening to those too. Anyway, let's get right into it. The first question comes to us from Alex M, who was my very first uh, YouTube subscriber, so he'll get the first question. He writes um, at the hashtag vodcast on Twitter, what music initially inspired you to start composing? Well. Um, Alex, thank you for writing the question. It's a great question. Basically, I was inspired by, um, I don't like big chamber music and orchestral stuff and John Williams and Hans Zimmer. I don't really like that stuff. I'm more into atonal stuff, the sort of new brigade of composers like uh, Johnny Greenwood, these kind of people working with unorthodox instrumentation and sort of bizarre sampling and all that stuff. Those are the kind of people that inspire me. Um, if we are going on the classical side, I like a lot of the modern composers like Avro. I think he's he's terrific. Um, but yeah, I, I like stuff that's kind of out of the box and bizarre. And usually the people who fit that description have had some kind of past live in pop music. So for example, Cliff Martinez, he was one of the original members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I believe. And his stuff, I mean, it's incredible. It's in Drive and I think Solaris he did. And it just doesn't sound like anything else. And I think it's because he's not from the composing world that his music sounds so unique and interesting. And so it's those kind of scores that I'm looking to uh, toward for inspiration. Those That kind of music really, really sort of sticks to me and speaks to me. There's nothing wrong, of course, with big, you know, powerful orchestral stuff. And of course, the most popular uh, films now are superhero movies and you know you seldom hear you know like a weird marimba theme in those it's all just big you know heavy string stuff and I, I like that every now and then but I prefer sort of the weird and wonderful underbelly of composers and uh, I think yeah so Johnny Greenwood Avro uh, we would have um, yeah Cliff Martinez in there and Para One I really like he's French anyway just I really like people who have had some kind of um, career in electronic or pop music and they're dipping their toe into composing. I mean, Trent Reznor is a great example of that. Uh, sort of sort of the new brigade of composers uh, who are really sort of changing the way that people um, think of film music and music for, you know, television or whatever. I really like that stuff. So that kind of music is what first made me go, 
oh my gosh, this is the kind of music that I really like and I'm trying to make. Maybe I could make it for film and television and all the rest of it. So hopefully that answers your question. Uh, yeah, weird and wonderful stuff. That's what I really like. And you should go explore those guys if you haven't already. I've, you've followed me on Twitter. You seem to be a pretty, like a pretty knowledgeable guy when it comes to music and composers and stuff. So chances are you already know them. But if you don't, uh, please check them out. They're great. Okay, the next question comes to us also on Twitter. Uh, Penny Lane or Maddie D use the hashtag podcast and ask me two questions. Greedy. Anyway, uh, the first one is what's something you wish you'd known when you first started, uh, started as a composer. And the second one is what is your favorite part about the composing process? So let's answer the first one. I kind of wish that I knew what kind of music I'd be composing because when you first get your gear and your computer and like, let's say a patch bay and all the rest of it, you're kind of, you're like a big rocket ship that's like sucking up everything. I'm like, I want this sample pack and I want this string library and I want this and I want this. And I found that I ended up using maybe like 40% of that stuff and I wasted a lot of money. So I know a lot of people are torrenting and all that stuff. I'm one of those people that just buy stuff because I really like to have like a clean system where everything works. And if there's a problem, I can contact the developers and all the rest of it. I spent a lot of money. Um, so I kind of wish that I had a more narrow focus when I first started so that I could really make sure that I budgeted properly and I had money left over for things like food and recreation and leisure activities and all this stuff because I really blew everything uh, on the wrong stuff. The other thing I wish I knew is I wish I had a better understanding of all the non-musical elements that went into composing. So not sample packs and all this stuff, but just like what kind of monitors I should buy, the fact that I should treat my room, how to treat it, all of those things you really don't think of because you just sort of, you get sucked in by a lot of the propaganda uh, of companies like Waves and UAD and you're like, oh, I need that reverb plugin. And you know, maybe you don't need that reverb plugin or maybe the stock reverb in Ableton or Pro Tools or Cubase or whatever you need is, is, is great too. So yeah, I would say if you're gonna jump into composing or any sort of aspect of music, ask yourself, don't even ask yourself what you wanna do, ask yourself what you don't wanna do. Imagine it like a statue and you have like just a block of marble. Start chipping away. Say like, I don't want to make this kind of music. I don't want to make that. And eventually I think some kind of form will emerge and that'll help you understand what your musical goals are and what you hope to achieve as a composer or uh, arranger or whatever it is. And you'll probably end up saving a lot of money. You won't sort of make the same mistakes that I did financially. So I would say that's the answer to that question. Really know what you're getting into before you start spending dough because it's a very expensive game composing. The next thing, uh, what's your favorite part of the composing process? Usually my favorite part is, okay, I really like it when, and this is what I do often, I'll send off a 15 second sample of a cue that a client has asked for. Let's say the, the cue is like two minutes long. And my favorite part is when they get back to me after they've heard it because I'll send it like through email or something and they're thrilled and they're like, I can't wait to see what you come up with next. That is the right direction, whatever. When I have that kind of motivation um, to continue along that path, that really gets me excited and makes me feel confident in what I'm doing. It's it's kind of like walking around like, you know, in a tunnel with a torch when you are first starting a track because you're just like, oh my God, is this gonna work? Is this gonna work? Uh, maybe I'll throw it into a minor key instead of a major key, or maybe we'll, you know, we'll switch from like a piano to a clarinet. I don't know. It's really scary. So when you get that first confirmation that you're on the right track, it really, it's a good warm, fuzzy feeling inside. And you're just like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This feels awesome. So I'd say 
that first sort of glimpse of optimism and positivity coming from the client. That's the best part of composing. Okay, thank you very much, Maddie, for those two questions. Next question. This one comes to us from Gabe Sinhorin. Sin Sinhorin? I don't know. Whatever. Gabe, Gabriel. Really cool name, by the way, Gabriel. Um, he writes and he says, and he wrote to me on, on the uh, podcast, podcast or Gmail um, email. He says, hey, Jeff, loving your YouTube videos. Looking forward to the podcast. Anyway, here's my question. Thank you very much, Gabe. I'm interested in scoring films. I've been composing music for a couple of years now, but only in the traditional song sense, never a soundtrack. What's the, to get, what's the best way to get used to the process of scoring films before actually scoring one? This is a great question. Thank you very much for asking it. When I, before I was doing composing and stuff, I was in a lot of bands uh, in high school. And I don't know if you've been in any bands. It sounds like you do have some experience in bands because you write that you, you're involved um, in the traditional song sense. So verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Um, if you've ever been in a band, the first thing you guys do when you're trying to like figure out what vibe you are and how well you work together, the first thing you do is you cover a song. In my case, because I'm like old, it was the song I always covered in bands was Buddy Holly. Or no, not Buddy Holly, but the Sweater Song by Weezer. We'd always cover that one because it was like a nice down tempo, really simple, like just like three notes down, 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 like really. Anyway. I would encourage you to go out and listen to some of the songs that you really like and the films that you like. Now, depending on how elaborate they are, you can still boil them down and start to do covers of your own in your DAW. Because even though you have like this roaring string section, if you pull out your piano, I'm not sure, I don't think you actually wrote what instrument you're most familiar with, but if you pull out your piano or your guitar or whatever, I bet you, you can follow along on your instrument of choice. Follow the chord changes, or even in Ableton, for example, take the score, and Ableton has a great feature. You can um, take audio and convert the melody, or the, or I forget what the other thing is. You can convert that to MIDI. So you can take the score, and then go convert melody or convert um, chord changes or something to MIDI. And then what Ableton does is it sort of intelligently. Uh, distills all the musical information and then it throws it down into MIDI so you can find out exactly where the notes are. Start from there, like start using the tools that are in some of the more sophisticated DAWs. I think Logic has this too. I don't know if Cubase does, but this will give you a good sense of where the chords are and you'll start to understand that even though it might sound kind of daunting and sort of all over the place, um, it's really just basic chord structures and notes. And if you start listening more and more, uh, to scores and film music, you'll realize just like in pop music, your ears going to start to go like, oh, I'm listening just to the baseline now, or, you know, you can focus and just listen to the drums. You can do the same thing with scores, depending on the score, however. I mean, non-pop oriented music is a bit trickier because we're playing with time signatures that are different and all that stuff. But really, when you're working with um, music for film, all the elements are still there. Like if you, if I listen to some of my favorite scores, you know, I can bring it into Ableton and I can tap the tempo and it, there's a BPM there. It might not sound like it because, you know, the strings are kind of flowy and there's no drums or whatever. But if you listen, you can conform that music to a beat grid and you'll realize, OK, just like a regular pop song, they're playing at 122 BPM. I'm just not hearing a big drum beat behind it. It's all kind of the same. So I would say do your best to cover some of your favorite score songs and use the tools that are available in DAWs. I mean, uh, if you want to use Ableton's uh, Convert Melody or whatever uh, to MIDI, 
I think it's like 70 bucks or something for Ableton intro. And if you're a student, it's even cheaper. Um, or just download the trial of Ableton and try it there and see if that works for you. But that would be my advice. If you want to start dipping your toe into the world of composing, do what any other band does when they want to start making music. And that's coming together and covering a song. And then that gets you familiar with the rules of that particular genre of music. So hopefully that helps you, Gabe. The next question comes from Eric and he says, hi, Jeff. Hi, Eric. I've got uh, some money I must spend. <laughs> well, good for you. <laughs> That's amazing. I would love to have money that I have to spend. I have a lot of money that I shouldn't spend. Um, he says, I've been eyeing Contact 10 Ultimate. Native Instruments is having a summer sale. That's true. So now seems to be like the time to grab it. What are your thoughts on this bundle? Well, Eric, thanks a lot for asking the question. I have this bundle, I'll have you know. And my thoughts are kind of split. I mean, Native Instruments, the best thing about Native Instruments, it's not the instruments that come with it and everything, or the instruments that are made for it. It has an incredible sampling engine, and it's the industry standard as far as sample libraries go. I mean, companies survive based on the sample libraries they make for Native Instruments is complete. And you probably know that there's a complete player and a complete like full. So one of the, I think the pros, if we're making a pros and cons list, is that if you're going to be working with Complete Ultimate, that's the full version of Complete. And there are some companies out there who have made string libraries, beat libraries, whatever, that are not compatible with the player version of, um, uh, of, uh, of, the, of, of Contact. So you want to make sure that if you are eyeing, you know, sample libraries or whatever that are only compatible with the full version that, you know, you're not making the mistake, you're not spending much money and going, oh my God, this is incompatible with contact player, you know, however you want to go about the complete bundle thing. So just that's one plus is that now you have access to a whole bunch of libraries that are only available for the full version of contact, which is exactly what complete 10 ultimate is. Um, you also probably know that there's a complete 10 standard and then an ultimate. And the difference between those two is that you have access to a whole bunch of, I'd say, cinematic or cinematically oriented instruments um, like Session Strings Pro and Session Horns Pro and a bunch of other things that are geared more to people who want to make music for film or they want to add some strings into like a pop track or a jazz track or whatever. So it's really an ideal bundle for people who are using um instruments that are film oriented and, and they have some great stuff they really do and there's also some really good drum stuff like session drummer and studio drummer and and stuff like that i would say that it's a really good value but i would also say that if you wait um we're due for contact six like any day now i think contact five came out like four or five years ago and Native Instruments has really picked up in popularity and value and sort of prestige since then. And a lot of people are going like, okay, you know, where's Contact 6? So Contact 5 has been around for like a really, it's like half a decade, which is forever in the tech world. So you might benefit to wait a little bit. Now, a lot of people said this about five months ago when I, you know, forked out the cash for complete 10 ultimate. They were like, well, we'll just wait because Contact 6 is coming out and then there's gonna be like a complete 11, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know what, screw it. Because people have been saying that for like four years now. So I would say if you're ready to put the investment in, um, go ahead and take the dive into Complete 10 Ultimate. I use maybe 70% of the stuff that comes with Complete 10 Ultimate. 
Um, it's a fantastic suite of instruments and stuff. And it, it's also great because there are things like the transient designer and some great EQs, uh, some great stuff made by Softube that model like LA-2As and all that and compressors and classic compressors. Those come with a 10 Ultimate Bundle and those are terrific. So there's advantages for not only if you're making film music and scoring, but if you're mixing and stuff like that, very flexible mixing tools. But ultimately you wanna go in Take a look at the differences because I think there's a grid on the Native Instruments page where you can see like 10 regular versus 10 ultimate and see if the extra stuff in 10 ultimate intrigues you or not. The other thing is that um, Native Instruments just came out with, I think, three new uh, string bundles. One is like orchestral brass and orchestral strings and solo strings. And like these, they're like $2.99 each American. Uh, if you're a contact, a full contact owner, you can buy them. If not, they're like $3.99 or something insane. They are beautiful sounding string libraries. I haven't bought I haven't bought any one of them yet because I'm just kind of waiting to see if maybe they have a sale on them or whatever. You should know that those do not come with Complete 10 Ultimate. And this incurred the ire of a lot of fans of Complete. They're like spending all this money on the Complete bundle. This is a Complete instrument and you're gonna make me pay extra for it. You're gonna give me a little deal. Like, why do I care? So anyway, you should know that before you dive in, the brand new sort of golden goose egg of uh, cinematic stuff from Native Instruments is not totally available yet um, for uh, for Complete 10. It maybe never will be. You'll always have to buy it separately. The other thing is that there's an incredible piano that just came out. Uh, one of my favorite composers, getting back to Alex's question about songs and music that inspired me to be a composer, there's this guy named Niels Fromm, incredible German composer. Uh, he has his feet kind of in the composing and in the dance electronica scene. Amazing stuff. And he just did this piano with Native Instruments called Una Corda. And the thing sounds phenomenal. I swear I cry like whenever I hear it. Honest to God, it's so emotionally captivating and moving. And this has not yet been added to complete. They'll probably add it in complete 11. So just, just saying, if you want to wait and complete 11 comes around as part of the, you know, contact six library, they'll probably add that library in and it'll be the same price, but you'll have to wait for another half off sale or something. But anyway, that is an amazing instrument that I really want to try again. I'm like you, right? Like I'm waiting on it on the fence to, to, to dive in. And I'm, I'm just going to probably buy it down the road or something. If they have a sale on individual contact instruments. But that is a beautiful, beautiful sounding piano. I can't get enough of pianos. I have, uh, I have all the ones that coming in. The other thing is that there's some great pianos in uh, Ten Ultimate, but there's also a great piano by a company who I'm going to be covering a little bit more on my channel called Sonic Couture. They make a piano called the Hammersmith, and this piano is phenomenal. It's a very traditional, flat sounding piano, but it's the best of the best as far as the classic piano sound. Beautiful grand piano recorded at uh, Hammersmith Studios in London incredible um and they've got some great mic orientations that you can try anyway so we're kind of getting off topic here i could talk about this stuff forever but anyway eric hopefully that gets you on a path toward making a decision about whether or not you want to uh, you know take the plunge because it is quite an investment with complete 10 ultimate i'd say do it because then you have access to the full contact instead of just the player and now you're opening yourself up to some amazing libraries that are made exclusively for uh the full version of contact. All right, next question comes to us from Simon Senvik, AKA Shisagi, Shisagi, I don't know. Good vodka, I can't pronounce anything. He writes, just found your channel and you make some great videos. Thank you. 
saw on Reddit you were going to do some vodcasts. I'd love to hear your feedback under the influence on a mix slash master of this song I just made. Plus, no problem with you playing this. By the way, if you're going to send me something you want to mix, uh, review on, I'm going to play it. Like 30 seconds just so everybody else can hear it. Um, I really struggle with the instrument separation, he says. I feel like this is very sonically dense, and I'm really unsure of where to pan each instrument due to the fact that there's a lot of RP rhythms, bass sounds, and often, uh, that often, sorry, uh, good vodka, that often tend to sound better when closer to the middle. My tracks get quite muddy quite easily. Realize that this might be hard to tackle just from the finished track, though if you need anything else, let me know. Also, in regards to the master, how to get a good audio clarity. This is a, this is a, a big one. Uh, without everything sounding overly crisp. Not sure I understand that, but anyway. Example, the weird stuff at the start can be unpleasant for the ears, but the crackles have a rhythmic necessity to them. Hoping I'm not too late with my reply, comma, time zones. Anyway, best regard, Simon Sandvik. Okay, why don't we have a listen to Simon's track and I'll give you my thoughts on those very specific problems he's talking about. So that was a really cool track, man. It reminds me a lot of like Kavinsky and some of the cool stuff coming out of uh, Paris, like 2009, 2010. Um, really awesome. Okay. Now let's address some of the problems you've had, namely the separation between the bass and the kick. The first thing you want to do is make sure that those cycles, those frequencies are separated. You can do that by either side chaining the bass to the kick or just separating them in, in the frequency spectrum. So Take your graphic EQ, whatever DAW you're using, and just pull it up and see where the bass is landing in the frequency spectrum. Take your pen and your paper out and just write, you know, I don't know, maybe it's happening at 110. That's where most of the energy is. Do the same for the other instruments and find out where they're landing. And then take your EQ and carve out space so that those are, you know, coexisting together peacefully. Imagine like a seesaw, right? If both people are trying to go down at the same time, it's not going to work. So you want one up 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 that's what you want happening in the bass and the kick that will clean up a lot of the definition i think next thing you want to do is remove a little bit of the distortion from that bass i noticed that when the clouds part in the verse i guess it is um you have a guitar come in um one of the things i think you can do with the bass is to remove the distortion before that little break in the music because what a lot of people do they think that by adding gain and distortion and all this stuff they're making the track more powerful in reality what they're doing is they're making things 
dirtier and muddier for the listener. So I would say that, excuse me, if you're using a plugin or anything like that, go to the overdrive or saturation or distortion, turn it down when everything is playing. But when we get to that break, then turn it up. Do this with automation. And I think this will create a more dramatic entrance for that bass. You don't have to get it, get rid of it completely when all the other in instruments come in, but the last thing you want to do is have everything distorted, everything muddy, uh, when everything's playing at the same time, because it's not really the sum of all the distortions that make things more powerful. It's making sure that every instrument is a little bit distorted. Then those things multiply, we get some nice harmonics coming in, and that's what makes things nice and dirty, but still clear. Next thing I would do with regard to panning, I noticed you have a little guitar that comes in um, at like the 30 or 40 second mark or whatever. It's hard to hear that. There's a couple things we can do to, to clean that up. You're talking about panning and knowing where to put things. Typically, guitars are panned hard left and right, with the exception of, let's say, a lead guitar, which is usually compressed and placed maybe somewhere at like 2 or 10 o'clock um, on the pan pot. So what you could do is duplicate that track, EQ the new track separately. So you have two instances of that guitar track, pan them hard left and right. I don't think you have a lot happening hard left and right. When I say hard left and right, I mean just panning them all the way left and right and making sure that the kick and the snare and the bass are all at the center. You want those things to be mono, right? The sides, they're on both sides, stereo information, mono right in the middle. If they're not already there, that's very important. Um, if you're worried about mono and stuff like that, what you could do is take that guitar, maybe pan it a little bit, like maybe one o'clock or maybe 11 o'clock, take a stereo, add like a slapback delay to that guitar. Um, and this way you're not stereoizing it per se. You're just adding a bit of dimension to it by adding that delay. You'll see it'll sort of widen. It'll open up. Um, and hopefully either by duplicating the track, panning those guitars, treating them differently left and right, because if you just pan them left and right, they'll go up by 6 dB and you'll have to go bring that one down or whatever. Pan them left and right, EQ them differently to make them sound a bit different, even though they're the same guitar part. Bring them down by about 3 dB and just hopefully that'll help them stick out or stereoize them with some delay if you're worried about monocompatibility. The other thing you can do to add overall clarity, I think, to the entire track is to high pass things. High pass just means letting the highs pass. What you can do is you can take an EQ and apply this EQ to maybe the guitar, uh, the cymbals, anything that doesn't have any low end information and really scoop away a high pass start at like you know 100 hertz and then just like sweep and cycle maybe up to 300 hertz or 350 and this way what you're doing is you're removing any low-end information from tracks that don't need any low-end presence a lot of people do this a lot of people go a bit too far they'll go all the way up to like 600 hertz or whatever don't do that go to maybe 300 to taste everything except for the kick um the baseline and anything that has some sort of low-end information to it and i think that should leave room for the kick and the bass to be sort of right in mono and everything else to have some interesting stuff happening at the the high end and the and the and the sort of upper mids and all the rest of it that's really the goal when you're mixing a track is to identify what's occupying you know the lower end of the frequency spectrum what's happening mid what's happening upper mid and what's happening high up and to treat those things differently to make sure almost like a photograph like a family photo that they're all everyone is in the same frame you know last thing you want to do is squish everyone in and then take the photo no you say okay you come in this way go down a little bit you come in like up a little bit ah, how about getting on your knee how about maybe standing on a chair everyone has to fit into the picture and they can't if everyone is smushed together in one frame because what that's called is masking that's when 
two instruments are occupying the same space in the frequency spectrum and we can't hear them or we, we can hear one but we can't hear the other because everything is squished so we can't see the person if two people are standing in the same space in the photo analogy so to speak i think that by employing those sort of tips mixing wise you can get a bit more clarity now when it comes to mastering this is tricky because i think what a lot of people do if you're looking for clarity without crispiness i think i understand what you're talking about but Maybe I don't. Anyway, I'll give it a shot. Um, personal story, I had KRKs before I upgraded to my Focals, and I realized that a lot of my masters were sounding really overly crisp and clear and what engineers would call sweet. Too much information and energy happening at about 10K, 11K. I'm gonna take another sip of vodka here. And the reason for that is because those monitors are really bass heavy and mid-range heavy so it was so bassy and so boomy that i couldn't hear what was happening you know above 5k so i was in mastering in my ozone or whatever i had i was boosting things up by like you know 5 db which is bad you don't want to do that mastering by the way you're making small moves if you're on a frequency spectrum you want to maybe boost by like half a db one db tops big sweeps and big cuts and dips, those should be happening in the mixing stage, not the mastering stage. So it could be that your room um, isn't very well treated. You're getting some room modes, which means a frequency at you know maybe 300 cycles is bouncing back and amplifying, and it sounds really heavy. And that masks, again, back to masking, frequencies that are happening elsewhere on the track. So you're going, oh, I can't really hear the highs. So you boost them. They're way too loud. Someone else plays them on their iPod. They play them on a professional you know, system in a nice room and it sounds really sort of tinny and shrill. It sounds way too high. That could be what's happening. It could be that your monitors are working against you. You wanna make sure that your monitors are very flat, meaning um, you're hearing all frequencies at equal energy and you aren't getting any weird sort of audio trickery and uh, your monitors are working with you. Your room is treated, sucking up all the bass and you can hear sounds um, as you wrote them and as they would sound pretty well in another space if you you know put them on another format. So hopefully with those tips, um, you will achieve, I think, a better track because I think you're on a really, really good path, man. That track is a lot of fun. It's very modern. And um, yeah, I liked it a lot. Our next question comes to us from Stevie G. He writes, mixing tips. Hey, Mr. Manchester, big fan of your videos. Thank you very much. Your tips and advice have been extremely helpful in taking my mixing and composition up a level or two, especially your mix walkthroughs. More to come, more to come. Noticed you were offering mixing advice for your upcoming vidcast and wondering if you'd like to give me some mixing tips on a track I've been struggling with. It's called Pog Liquor, working title, and can be downloaded from SoundCloud. We'll play a couple Play a little bit from uh, Pog Liquor. I can't seem to get a mix, he says, right, no matter what I try. The problem, to my ears, seems to be with the bith, which sounds either too bassy or too thin, depending on what adjustments I make. And the different systems I've tested it on, it's good that you're testing it on other systems. I composed it and mixed it using um, Roland Ederall, <laughs> so there's something I get at the pharmacy, monitors, as well as Turtle Beach headphones. You're just making this stuff up. Not the most pro gear I know, both of which have bass boosting features, although I leave those off for producing. I'm not sure if the bass I need to be adjusting, I'm not sure it's the bass I need to be adjusting, the EQ or other elements that need cutting or boosting. Maybe you could help uh, with trying to pin down exactly what 
it is about this mix that's sounding so off. If there's anything else about the track composition, for instance, or maybe it's too busy with other instruments and places, or could use more elements in other places, feel free to comment. I'm thick-skinned and not really particularly attached to this track after abandoning it for a while now. Um, if you'd like to help out with some advice, I'd be grateful and, of course, happy to use any part of this track for the vodcast. Looking forward to the show. Unfortunately, being in the UK, I might not be able to tune in live, but I'll be able to catch it as soon as it's available on YouTube regardless. Thanks, Stevie G. I love England. And you don't have to worry because... Um, not doing any live stuff. I'm not a live guy. Take a sip. Let's listen to your track, Stevie. Um, dude, that was a great track. I really like that. Like, there's some great acoustic versus synthetic instruments. Um, a lot of great energy. The arrangement is really cool. Things drop out and then they come back in. It's very powerful. Um, I really like that. You should be ashamed that you have been in that track. There's a lot. Has a lot of promise. I think. Um, as far as uh, the low end information is concerned, I think I know what's happening, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of the last mix thing that that we just covered, namely. Um, this is a very, I don't know what happened here, but this is a very shrill sounding track. I have a pretty good room. I've got, I don't want to boast, but like some really good monitors and uh, it's, and I've got some NS10s as well. I was referencing the mix on both of those output, uh, output uh, devices and it's a very shrill, high sounding mix. Maybe you're going a little bit overboard. Uh, boosting some of the high end, it doesn't really need to be boosted because it seems like, if anything, there's a real deficit happening in the mid-range. I'm talking maybe from like 300 cycles to 700 cycles or 800 cycles. Like there's a real lack of, of energy happening in that area. And it, it could be, like I said before, I'm not sure if I said this before, vodka, um, we could be getting the smiley curve, right? So we have a big bass boost and then we dip down in the mids for some reason and we come right back up in the highs. It could be that you're listening, as you said, on the turtle headphone things and what those are doing um, is they're sort of overcompensating 
on the low end. So you're sort of bringing the highs up a little bit. But man, this track is really shrill. And it does a disservice because, again, I said the arrangement is really cool. There's some really cool ideas in here. Especially the bass. It's really funky. That Like it's really you're on the right track, man. But there is no, I think, um, there is no real mid information in the mids and upper mids. Um, and that's causing a problem because all we're getting is a lot of bass and then masking of a lot of stuff that's happening further down the spectrum with all that high-end information. I think we can remix the track a little bit to make sure that all those instruments, the bass, the drums, all those things are fitting and they're, they're where they're supposed to be frequency-wise. I would say that you know, I would also recommend high cutting and high passing some of those instruments that don't really belong in the low end. So, um, you know, if you have the stems to those drums, I would say, you know, get on that snare, high pass it a touch, get on those hi hats and all the high pass them a little bit. Um, make sure the bass and the kick uh, have enough low end information in them so that they're poking through, maybe compress them a little bit, not too much. People always go overboard with compression, but and maybe apply just a bit of a dip um, on the high end if you're mixing everything onto a drum aux channel. So if you're sending all the drum information to one channel, take an EQ and just bring it down a little bit because the overheads and the hi-hats and the cymbals are way too bright, way too shrill. Um, you've got great stuff happening in that bass and you've got some also really cool stuff happening in the panning too. Like you have these little sort of like things happening like left and right. Um, that's like a scientific term. Of course, musical scientific term. I don't know what it's called. Anyway, some fun ARP stuff happening. So I would say really focus on boosting the mid-range up, bringing the high down. And I think that that will help the low end poke through because audio is a give and take, man. Like you boost something on the high end while well, you've compromised the upper mids. You boost too much on the upper mids, you've compromised things at the low end. So it's give and take. And I would say that I begin by really restructuring this track with an emphasis on what's happening in the mid-range and forget about the low end, forget about the high end, focus on the mid range. And I think that your problems will sort of start to get organized. That didn't make any sense. Okay, so hopefully that puts you on a pretty good path. Again, I like this track a lot. Don't abandon it. Just focus on that mid range a little bit and then things will sort of even out. The last question we have is from René Pierre. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. He says, as a junior composer, I would be interested to know more about, and then he asked a couple of questions and I, I very politely asked him just to sort of specify one. And he, his question is, is basically, he says, the hardest thing for me right now is how to chain different parts of a song together. And he says that he is a, a violinist and a pianist, which is really cool because I am neither of those things. Um, and he says he feels it beats. He has a hard time with beats. Uh, and he feels like beats are the way for him to sort of glue different parts of a track together. And I guess, uh, René, you want to know how to use elements of a song that you're less familiar with, like drums and bass and all that stuff, to help glue the track together. Listen to music, film music, that has percussive components to it. Because like you said before, you're a pianist and a violinist. A lot of DAWs come preloaded with loop packs for drums and percussion. So timpani, taiko drumming, whatever. Try and find tracks that have that in the genre of music that you want to compose in, and then take the loops that you have in GarageBand or whatever and sub them in for whatever melody you've written over top. Pick a BPM, 110, 120, 90, 70, whatever, and then just take those drum loops and put them in underneath. Um, depending on the kind of music you want to make, and I'm not really sure what it is, uh, I know Easy Drummer has a really great, basically, loop system 
uh, look into that. They sometimes have sales. They might have a student discount where you can record a, you know, a guitar line or a piano line or a violin line even, pick your BPM, and then depending on the genre of music you're making, you can just sub in easy drummer drum parts and that kind of it's kind of like like a, a sort of like a drumming for dummies sort of thing i don't mean that in a, in a negative way some of us are more comfortable in other instruments but it's a good way to sort of get you familiar with what the drum should sound like depending on the song that you're making and then you can just listen to them and then program your own drums in ableton or whatever daw you're using but i feel like the key of course to a lot of songs as far as gluing them together is in the drum track it's the backbone, it's the beat of a song. So I would say go to Easy Drummer, download the trial. I think it lasts like 14 days and then you can get acquainted with whatever genre of music you're making, slide them underneath, write a little part and then you can sort of hear what works and what doesn't work and then you can program drums on your own. A lot of people don't even like, you know, if you know what you're doing with Easy Drummer or Ableton or even a Studio Drummer and Native Instruments, um, I think there's another drum pack by Tune Track. I forget what they make, but oh, it's Superior Drummer. A lot of tracks you know and love are replaced by samples. It's called Sample Enhancement and Replacement. And there's no real drummer there. It's just those those VSTs and those software libraries. So you'd be surprised at what you can achieve as far as realness with those tracks. So I would say listen to tracks that you like. Learn where the bridges and pre-choruses and choruses come in. Um, and then try and compose something either on the violin or the piano. I see the piano is a, probably a bit of a safer instrument for you. Then go, is it, go into Easy Drummer, sub in those, um, those drum parts and find a flow and a sound that works for you and then try and recreate that on your own or just go all in with Easy Drummer. They have like, a, like hundreds of different genre sound packs for drums and they're very realistic and very tweakable too. And then go and you know, look up a tutorial on drum mixing and you can learn how to really EQ things like snare and toms and New York style compression and all that stuff. So I think that hopefully should help you get on a good path. Okay, oh my goodness, my drink is empty. I think that's it for the very first edition of the vodcast. Um, if you liked what you heard, if you found it helpful, leave a comment, like it, but it would mean a lot to me if you took this and shared it on Reddit or shared it on Twitter or shared it in whatever circles you have. Um, that would mean so much because I could get a lot of views and then I could use those views and go to a company because I've been in talks with a couple different companies and say, hey, I have this many people watching the vodcast. I would love it if you could help me give away a plugin to one person who asks a question. That would, that would be awesome, right? Free plugins, free gear. That'd be cool. So like, subscribe, share, blah, blah, blah. If you want to ask me a question, uh, you can ask me a question at hashtag vodcast on my Twitter, which is at Jeff Manch, or you can write me at um, vodcastpodcaster at gmail.com. That's it for me. Um, keep the questions coming. I'll keep the vodka flowing. Bye. <laughs>